Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Luke chapter 23. If you use one of our pew Bibles, uh, that'll be on page 884. And in light of where we are, I don't think that we need much by way of introduction. We come this morning to the very center of the story of God's eternal plan to redeem his people, uh, the very center of, of the story of, of the Bible as a whole, uh, as Jesus is crucified for the salvation of his people. And so we're in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 26. It says, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren." and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will get, begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And so last week, Jesus stood trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, and also before King Herod. And despite being found innocent of all charges, he was ultimately handed over to be executed by crucifixion. As we pick up here in verse 26, as they take Jesus away, uh, we, we get a, a picture, an idea of just how bad things have been. We're going to talk more about crucifixion in just a moment. Uh, but, but one way that the Romans shamed people who were condemned to die was by making them carry their own cross to the place of execution. The, the vertical beam would already be in place, uh, and the, the criminal was forced to, to carry the cross beam uh, in what would have been a, a, a public procession. But instead of Jesus carrying his cross, we see that the soldiers commandeer a man named Simon from the city of Cyrene to carry it for him. And what that tells us is that Jesus was physically incapable of carrying his cross at this point. Now, if you think about it, he has been beaten repeatedly throughout the night. He was beaten again by Herod's guards. And we know from the other gospel accounts that he's been whipped severely by Pilate. He's had no sleep. Uh, no doubt he is severely dehydrated. And so he is as, as not physically able to carry uh, this cross beam that would have probably weighed close to 100 pounds. In situations like this, Roman soldiers had the right to conscript or, or force someone else to carry the cross uh, instead. You, you could not refuse. And so they grab Simon and they make him carry the cross behind Jesus. Now in verse 27, we see that there's a large group of people following Jesus, including a group of women who are weeping for him. And it may sound weird to us, but in the ancient world, it was customary for people, and particularly women, to mourn the loss of life at an execution. But in verse 28, Jesus tells these women not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves 
and for their children. And that's because a time, a day of judgment is coming. In verses 29 and 30, he speaks prophetically of a time when people who have not been able to have children would be considered blessed because of the dire conditions they are living in. In fact, things will be so bad that people will wish that the mountains would fall on them and that the mountains would cover them and and give them a quick death. This is a, a third and final warning about the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem. As the Jewish rejection of Jesus becomes full and final, this coming judgment uh, is certain. And he emphasizes this with, with a proverbial saying, where he says, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And he, he's drawing a, a contrast here. Right? Green wood still has a lot of moisture in it, and so it does not burn very easily, whereas dry wood will, will light up. And, and the contrast that, that he's drawing, since fire is normally used as a picture of judgment, is between himself and the Jewish people. I think the, the point is that if the Romans are treating Jesus like this, even though he does not deserve it, imagine how much worse things will be when God uses the Romans to judge the Jews for their rejection of the Messiah. It's going to be awful, and historically we know that it was awful when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so Jesus is on his way to be crucified. He has given one final warning to the people, and we'll see what happens next as we pick up again in verse 32. It says, Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So as we pick up again in verse 32, Luke tells us that there were two other men being executed along with Jesus. Most likely these are our Jewish revolutionaries, just like Barabbas last week who were being put to death for their attempted insurrection. And eventually, they all arrive at a location that is identified as the Skull, which sounds like an appropriate name for a place of execution. And we're not exactly sure of why this place is called the Skull. It could be because of the the morbid nature of what takes place here. And some have suggested that that this place was on a hill that, that had the shape of a skull. 
Uh, but, but whichever it was, incidentally, the, the Latin word for skull is where we get the word Calvary. And so if you've ever wondered what Calvary is or what that means, like we were singing about earlier, uh, it's referring to the place of Jesus' death. It's how the Romans referred to the location. And then in verse 33, Luke simply says that they crucified Jesus in the middle of the other two men. And he doesn't need to say anything else because anyone who would have been reading this account originally would have known exactly what all was included with that. Today, our understanding of, of the, the horrors of, of crucifixion is usually limited to being put on a cross. That's what we think of when we think of, of crucifixion. But the reality is that it was much more than that. And so for starters, you were completely stripped of your clothing so that your body was exposed to the elements whether that be the sun or the rain or the cold. You would be tied to the cross and then lifted up and left to hang. Sometimes you would also be nailed to the cross, which we know was the case with Jesus. And then you waited. Over time, your muscles began to grow tired and your body posture would begin to slump and restrict blood flow and oxygen. Vultures and bugs would begin to take advantage of your vulnerability. Crowds of, of people are standing there gawking at you while all this is happening. Typically, crucifixion led to a slow, painful, and humiliating death, uh, usually over a couple of days. And there are still other elements of the experience that aren't suited for mentioning here. The, the bottom line is that everything about crucifixion was custom-designed to, to have the, the greatest uh, deterrent effect to, to keep people in line. So as you saw someone being crucified, you said to yourself, I don't care what it takes, I do not want that to be me. And that was the whole point. But this is Jesus' fate. And yet, in the midst of everything he is experiencing, in verse 34, he prays, not for himself or for relief from his suffering, but for the very people who are crucifying him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Right? Jesus sees that these people don't fully grasp the significance of what they're doing. Right? The, the Jewish leaders have hardened their heart against Jesus. They have suppressed the truth about who he is. And obviously the, the Roman soldiers don't know much about Jesus at all. So as they do this, they're, they're not doing it with the conscious idea that they are crucifying the Son of God. Of course, that doesn't mean that they're not responsible for what they're doing, because Jesus is the Son of God. And even if Jesus was just a normal person, they would still be putting him to death unjustly. But this is remarkable. Jesus has, has called his disciples to pray for their enemies, to bless those who persecute them. And here he provides the ultimate example of that as, as he prays for the very people who are subjecting him to such undeserved torture. As we said last week, that what Jesus is doing here is the greatest demonstration of love ever. There, there is no other possible explanation for it. Meanwhile, in verse 34, we see that the soldiers who crucified Jesus are casting lots for his clothes. 
And by law, someone who died by crucifixion lost all property rights, and so the the soldiers essentially are rolling dice or drawing straws to see which one of them will get to keep Jesus' clothes. And while the common people are, are standing there watching, the religious leaders take the opportunity to continue taunting Jesus. They mention all of the miracles that he was able to perform to help other people. But now he seems unable to miraculously help himself. Then the the soldiers join in also. They offer Jesus sour wine, which was was cheap and and of low quality. It would be insulting to a king. And they, they, they call him to prove his identity by saving himself, which you may recall sounds eerily similar to the temptations of Satan back in chapter 4 when Jesus was in the wilderness. Then Luke also mentions that there is a sign on the top of the cross which mockingly says, this is the king of the Jews. Then in verse 39, one of the criminals next to Jesus chooses to take his last moments to join in the ridicule. He, He sarcastically says that if Jesus is the Messiah, then he should save himself and them also. Presumably because, again, these are, are Jewish freedom fighters who would, who would be on the side of the Messiah. And the idea is that if Jesus was truly the Messiah, then God wouldn't let him die this way. Right? The Messiah is supposed to set the people free. But this simply looks like failure. Of course, lost in all of this mockery is the ironic truth that it is precisely because Jesus is the Christ that he cannot save himself, because to save himself and spare himself would be to abandon his people in their sin. The only way Jesus can save his people is to suffer and die in this moment. But then in verse 40, we get perhaps the most unexpected development of all, when the criminal on the other side of Jesus rebukes the other man. We see that he recognizes that while they are being punished justly for the things that they have done, Jesus is innocent and does not deserve what's happening to him. Not only that, but we see in verse 42 that, that, that this man seems to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. We have absolutely no idea how he has come to this realization, but, uh, but as he is on this cross, he asks Jesus, in a moment where Jesus has absolutely nothing going for him and everything going against him, and he reaches out and asks Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Now, as we've seen before, the, the idea of remembering something biblically doesn't mean to think of something that you had forgotten. It means to act on knowledge that you have. And so, in other words, this man ha- has cast his hope on Jesus and asked him to allow him into the kingdom of God. And in response, Jesus tells the man, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a turn of events. In the worst moment of this man's life, minutes away from death, he receives the promise that on the other side of death, he will have eternal life with Jesus, starting on this very day. And that time is drawing near, as we'll see picking up again in verse 44. Luke writes, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So as we pick up again in verse 44, Luke tells us that it was now about the sixth hour, which for us would mean about 12 o'clock noon. But despite the fact that it's the middle of the day, for the next three hours, darkness covers the whole land. And this imagery is, is ominous as the very creation is reflecting the significance of what is happening here. You may remember that back at the beginning of the story, as the news of Jesus' birth was delivered to shepherds, the glory of God lit up the darkness of night. But now as Jesus hangs on this cross, the darkness of God's judgment blots out the light of day, which according to the prophets should serve as a sign that God is at work here. Then at the end of verse 45, Luke says that around 3 o'clock, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And that is a small detail with immense significance. First of all, when Luke says that it was torn, he means for us to understand that God is the one who tears it from top to bottom. This is a divine act. And there's debate over which specific curtain this is referring to. There were were two prominent curtains in the temple. There was one curtain at the entrance that separated the outer courts from the temple proper. And then there was another curtain that that separated the holy place, where only the priests could go, from the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go only once a year because God made his very presence to dwell there. But really, regardless of of which curtain Luke is referring to, the symbolic meaning is the same. And that is that the ultimate sacrifice for sin has been offered. And the temple and all of its systems no longer have any significance for God's people. Now this could also be seen as as, as an imagery of God's presence leaving the temple, similarly to what we see in Ezekiel chapter 10. But at this time, in verse 46, Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this may be a good place to acknowledge that this entire passage is full of Old Testament quotations and allusions, just as we have come to expect as we've gone through the story. I haven't stopped to point each one out along the way because it would make the sermon too disjointed, but I want to encourage you to take a few minutes this afternoon to read through Psalm chapter 22. As you read it, it sounds like a first-person account of what it would be like to be Jesus at this point. Beyond that, David's words in Psalm 69 and, and 31 are reflected in the specific wording that is used to taunt Jesus while he's on the cross. And in Jesus' last words here, committing himself into God the Father's care. And the point in all of this is that as David experienced these kinds of sufferings in his own life, Jesus is experiencing them in the extreme. And in doing so, 
Luke is demonstrating that Jesus is the promised messianic son of David. Then after Jesus calls out these last words, entrusting himself to the Father, Luke says that he breathed his last. And that phrase is deceptively important. Uh, Interestingly, none of the gospel accounts portray Jesus as dying. Of course, I don't mean to suggest that he didn't die, but, but the language is important. You see, dying is something that happens to you, outside of your control. But this is something that Jesus does of his own uh, choice. Uh, the point is that Jesus dies here on his own terms at the exact moment he chooses to. As he tells the disciples in John chapter 10, he has authority to lay down his life, which means he also has the authority to take it up again, which we'll get to later. And so we, we, Luke means us to see that this is not an ordinary death. Jesus comes to the point where he realizes that his redemptive mission is complete and he departs. Well, in verse 47, Luke pans over to a centurion, the, the Roman military officer who would be in charge over the crucifixion. And as he watches how Jesus dies, he glorifies God. He worships. And he says, certainly, this man was innocent. And in fact, innocent is is possibly not quite strong enough of a translation. The the idea is not simply that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, as much as it is that Jesus was righteous. Even a, a Gentile can see that something significant was going on here. And then the crowds, when they see everything that has happened, as they go back home, they beat their chest, which was a universal sign of grief in the ancient world. This seems to be an acknowledgement by many of the people, if not all of them, that Jesus' death was, in fact, an injustice. And then we see that there is a, a group of people who have known Jesus personally for some time, who are standing at a distance watching everything. And so the time has finally come, and Jesus has given his life. And as we finish the chapter, uh, we'll read about Jesus' burial, beginning in verse 50. It says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And so picking up in verse 50, Luke introduces us to a man named Joseph, a man named Joseph who is from the the town of Arimathea. And Joseph is described as being a good and righteous man, and as a member of the Sanhedrin who had not agreed with the decision to crucify Jesus, and as someone who who had a, uh, who was a seeking, looking for the kingdom of God. In other words, Luke describes Joseph as a rare member of the Jewish leadership who had a true heart for God and who apparently had been an admirer 
of Jesus. And so Joseph goes to Pilate and requests to give Jesus an honorable burial. And when he's granted permission, he wraps Jesus' body in a linen shroud, and he takes him to a brand new tomb that has never been used before, which would have been exceedingly rare, where he begins to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Now, the Jews had a fairly elaborate process for preparing a body for burial. There was washing and anointing with oil and wrapping it in cloth. But with all the time that's passed, it's getting toward the end of the day, which means that the Sabbath is about to begin, which would require everyone to rest from any kind of work. So there's not enough time to complete this process, and it's going to have to be postponed until after the Sabbath. Now, along with Joseph, Luke tells us about a group of women who have followed Jesus since his time in Galilee. These would be some of the same women that we read about back in chapter 8, people like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. And they have followed behind Joseph, and they see exactly where Jesus is placed, so they know where Jesus is. And they go back to the city and get everything ready to finish preparing Jesus' body for its permanent burial. Then Luke closes the chapter by telling us that they rested on the Sabbath according to the law. Saturday was a a day of complete rest, so the women are planning to come back first thing on Sunday morning. What they find on arrival is going to blow their minds. So in our passage this morning, Jesus is crucified, and as he dies, God makes it clear that the old covenant, which is represented by the temple, has reached its conclusion. And a condemned criminal, only moments away from his own death, becomes the first person to get saved under the new covenant. Of course, this isn't the end of the story, but even here we can begin to appreciate the significance of what has happened. One of the interesting aspects of the New Testament is that by and large the gospel accounts simply tell us what happened. And then it's the, the writings of the apostles throughout the rest of the New Testament, that tell us why and explain the significance of what has happened. And as we read through the rest of the New Testament, we find that because of Jesus, there are now no more sacrifices to be made. There are no more priests needed to mediate between God and his people. There is no more physical location where God must be uh, sought and found only at certain times. Through Jesus, the obstacle of sin has been overcome. There is no longer anything separating God from his people, and we now have access to God anytime, anywhere. We also have the promise that God will one day make all things new. And the death of of Jesus is such a strange combination of of sorrow and joy in that way. It's, it's, It's heavy and it's weighty because Jesus had to die. And yet it's, it's joyful and it's reason to celebrate because Jesus willingly did that for us out of love. And so if you're, if you're here and you don't know anything else about Christianity, this is what you need to know. Jesus Christ died so that we can live. Jesus experienced God's wrath for our sins so that we can experience God's love. Jesus endured unjust suffering so that one day everything that is wrong in this broken world will be made right again. And to receive the benefits of Jesus' work, we are called to respond to this good news 
like the repentant thief on the cross, by turning from our sin and placing all of our hope for salvation in what Jesus and only Jesus has done to save us. And from there we have the honor and the privilege of following Jesus in discipleship and in helping other people to come to know and follow him as well until he returns to establish his kingdom forever. So as we have read together this morning, let us rejoice and celebrate and worship Jesus for what he has done for us. Let's pray together.